Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, Pete Waltz. Thanks, Valerie. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting week at the DC Insider Employer Update. Joining us for this week's roundup are David Fortney. David, how are you? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Bert Fishman, are you out there? Hi, Pete. Good to be here. And Nita Beecher, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Pete. Looking forward to it. So let's get started. Lots to cover from last week, running down the headlines. David, let's start with you on a COVID and vaccine update and then pass the ball to the next colleague. Let's start with what is going on with the emergency temporary standard uh, for OSHA. I mean, the short answer is so far, nothing publicly. What we're beginning to see is the Secretary Walsh been in place now for three weeks says he's taking a close look both at the science and the changing situation on the ground. Uh, We have more people getting vaccinated. And the question is whether there is a grave danger. That's what the statute requires in order to issue an emergency regulation. At this point, it's becoming a little uncertain, and it also may become slightly fractured. Uh, They may be looking at a standard for certain segments, like uh, hospital and healthcare, and not for the general workplace. So. Not much is going on publicly, but we think behind the scenes, it's not dead, it's still coming, but we don't know what it is going to be. And you know, David, the other thing to keep in mind is they are moving ahead rapidly in this Biden administration on vaccinations. Uh, They had wanted to have 100 million vaccinations by the end of the 100 days. They hit 75 days, they're at 150 million vaccinations. And President Biden wants to get to 200 million by the 100th day now. They do have a problem, though. Right now, we are seeing that a third of the military and about a third of healthcare workers have not gotten the vaccine. They're refusing. And we'll have to see if at some point there is a mandate that they get that vaccine. What's the holdup with that, Nita? I mean, is it just personal preference or is there, it seems like an awfully large group there that's made that decision. What's going on there? Well, part of the problem is, and I defer to David and Bert on this, part of the problem is the emergency nature of this vaccine. You're not allowed to make people take the vaccine. It has to be done on a voluntary basis. And David, could you uh, provide us a little bit more data on that? No, that's exactly right. And so as a voluntary measure, we have a significant number of folks that are simply saying, I'm not ready yet. Now, that will change, assuming there's full approval. Then, as we have with so many other vaccinations in in our society, we will be able to lawfully mandate it. But we're months away from that. Let's move over to some of the uh, recent updates. I know we had a death in the the Democratic family. uh, What's that all about? Democratic Representative Alcee Hastings Uh, from Florida passed away. He's a controversial member, was the only impeached judge that ever ran for Congress and successfully did so and was reelected 15 times. He's from a safely Democratic uh, district, so uh, it's less a threat to the uh, Democratic majority than it will be an early test of Biden's popularity. Will he be able to reach into white men? Will he be able to reach into Hispanics? 
Uh, so uh, keep your eye on that district. As I say, it's going to stay a Democratic uh, seat, but just who's going to vote and in what numbers will be an important measure of the president's popularity. Nita, you brought up uh, some things changing in Title IX last week uh, as it relates to Bostock. Any updates there? Uh, well, we just had uh, the Department of Justice issued a memo saying that Bostock did cover uh, Title IX. As a result, the Department of Education has is coming out. They're looking at all of their requirements based on executive orders issued by President Biden around the whole protecting trans uh, individuals uh, in education, which is in contrast to what's going on in the states. And then lastly, David, there's been a Republican response, some corporate pushback, you will, to some of the things going on in Georgia. Fill us in on that. Yes, this is the whole challenge on this uh, sort of woke parallel government, that that is the corporations responding, being adverse uh, to uh, the recent changes in the voting law in Georgia, corporations being criticized. Why didn't they step forward to prevent the change or lobby against the change? What are they going to do in reaction? You saw MLB move the All-Star game out of Atlanta in response. It's interesting. This is something where uh, I was talking to a head of an employer association, and he was noting that there is this trend that employers, companies are now being assumed to be much more responsible for a whole variety of issues that otherwise are being handled in the political sphere and it says the dysfunctionality of the political policy process occurs. Increasingly, many stakeholders are looking to companies to take the lead and to effect the changes. Maybe a little unrealistic, but Nita, I know this is something you've looked at and talked to with folks about. I spent 21 years in corporations. I can tell you right now, they do not like this position of, of having to step forward, but obviously they feel like they have to. Well, and finally, former Majority Leader McConnell, Minority Leader now, noted that the corporations should stay out of the political process. But of course, he did send fundraising notices to all of them, and he's willing to accept the donations. Just don't speak up or participate like they did with MLB. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. A little bit of a mixed bag, but uh, the dollars do speak. Well, let's transition over to that American jobs plan. I know, David, we opened that up last week. We dug into some of the things. Everybody participated. But, Bert, why don't you give us a rundown, kind of a scope of the bill and maybe an analogy to some of the other things that have happened in American history? Well, Pete, I think it's important that we do so. The first thing to remember is that this bill is gigantic. It is everything in the platform, everything in Biden's Build Back Better. Uh, One way of looking at it is kind of like a New Deal 2.0, because if you take the NRA, the WPA, the NLRA, the TVA, all the other A's from the New Deal, you get some measure of the scope of this $2 trillion bill. It's uh, infrastructure, but it's infrastructure for the 21st century. And we'll unpack that in just a a little bit. But it includes such things as broadband. It includes such things as 5G chips. This is not your old-fashioned infrastructure. And the other thing to remember about this bill is that it has something for just about everyone, and it touches every sector of American life. And just as important, it probably touches every congressional district in the United States. That used to be called pork barrel legislation. It sounds like you've used every 10 times, Bert. So what's everything? Well, this one is the love child of Miss Piggy and Porky Pig. Oh, there we go. More farm animals. Yep, now we're we're back to the show. (laughs) David, take us through. What what are some of the details here? You know, a couple of things. One, 
uh, Burke's right. This is like the New Deal, but now we're in the 21st century. So we have a reset or an attempted reset, just as occurred 80 years ago. We have a further reset. We have, if you think 50 years ago, Ronald Reagan said, government isn't the solution, it's the problem. And we have spent the last 50 years thinking about how we function with scaled back governmental function generally and debating what that paradigm looks like. President Biden's proposal fundamentally not only reintroduces a whole range of different programs and expanded programs, but it also reimagines the role of government very expansively as we move into the 21st century. It is a reset beyond many that we've seen. So it has the traditional infrastructure, the highways, the bridges, as Bert mentioned, airports, you name everything. And I think that there's broad consensus that those have fallen into significant disrepair. Uh, but then we have beyond that, it starts to radiate out, if you think about this, new buildings, modernizing buildings, all of this. So this gets into a lot of the energy efficiency and changes. Uh, improvements in schools. COVID has put even more of a premium on that. Ventilation systems, uh, veterans hospitals, and, and a host of other changes. The definition of infrastructure is effectively being broadly defined, and the conversation has changed by the way that the Biden administration has introduced this. You know, what you think of when you think of infrastructure are roads and bridges. Uh, this one is a whole lot more than that. One of them is to build, preserve, and retrofit 2 million homes and commercial buildings. And the schools, modernizing the schools, that would be adding air conditioning and also Wi-Fi and other kinds of facilities, childcare facilities, and something I believe all our veterans deserve, which is upgrading veterans hospitals and federal buildings. Now, this probably, David and Bert, is just the outer rim of what is infrastructure. But Bert, I think we go further than that outside of infrastructure with yeah. the next one. One of the few areas of the bill that has gotten real pushback from especially the Republicans in the Senate is the whole notion that infrastructure includes dealing with the care e economy. That is to say, to do something with our nursing home structure and to bring healthcare workers who've been left out of most federal labor laws back into the federal labor picture and it's been quite controversial because it is the least related to uh, 20th century infrastructure and may be one of those parts of the bills that ultimately falls out if and when we come to debating the particular topics on the bill. There are still other outer limits. David, I know you've been interested in the manufacturing sector. I have. And let me just add, one of the reasons you're seeing healthcare being focused on in those service employees, if you look at the key stakeholders that you mentioned, Bert, is the Service Employees International Union. That's their sweet spot, and that's their piece that favors them. With respect to uh, manufacturing, the whole supply chain, there's broad-based job training. Once again, these are programs that many people feel may be worthwhile. They just don't conceptually view them as part of an infrastructure bill. But again, I think this is illustrative of how broadly the Biden administration has cast that net. And I think it's strategic because it allows this big bundled approach. And that's where the negotiations start in how to deal with that. So, I mean, it sounds like, gang, we're spending a lot of money in a lot of different ways, but there's got to be kind of a primary goal here. Nita, what's the sense of what this is all really about? It's all really about jobs. It's about good, what Biden calls union jobs, good paying, good benefits with uh, lots of opportunities for people to have a long tenure 
to organize a union, to bargain collectively with their employer. And David, I think that's really the secondary focus. It's jobs and it's unions. And they are ideally, from the administration standpoint, union represented workers, prevailing wage, collective bargaining agreements. So this goes back, we've talked about the PRO Act before. This is a way of effectively, if you will, backdooring, introducing many of the changes that the PRO Act envisioned through this omnibus bill. Similarly, for the reasons we've talked about before, the same forces that oppose the PRO Act uh, that are widespread are going to move forward and say that part of the bill should really be stripped out. And I think that becomes more problematic. David, one other thing I want to mention, and you mentioned this earlier, is there's $100 billion for retraining. That's part of the idea that workers are going to be displaced by some of the items in here, whether it's electric cars or others. And so not only are they looking to get jobs now, but looking to get jobs in the future and have America ready for the 21st century. I'd like to add there are a couple other things that are in this bill that are kind of interesting. One, it's a pure union wish list, which is what they call neutrality part of employers, in this case on the part of federal contractors. That is to say, to stay neutral in a union election, because despite all of the pro-union rhetoric in this bill, you have to remember that unions have to be elected by the workers. And there's nothing in this bill that makes anybody vote for anything. And I just like to uh, add to David's point, the PRO Act is now part of this bill, but the Democrats don't even have 50 votes to pass the PRO Act bill. And I think that's one of the reasons why this part of the bill was going to be stripped out of this legislation. So let's talk about this opposition then. I mean, what's the other side of the discussion? Where Where's the opposition on this? David, can you start that? Sure. So the Democrats have received a, a big boost, uh, again, by perhaps the most powerful person in the Senate, uh, an unelected official, the parliamentarian, ruling that the reconciliation process can again be used, not once but twice this year. And so there's great thought being given now as to how to package this new bill under the reconciliation that has uh, requirements that it impact the budget. And it also requires under the so-called Byrd rule, named for Senator Byrd, that only certain items relating to budget matters can be included. So if it's not budget related, it should not be part of the bill. Labor law reform probably is not budget related and probably should not be in the bill. So that may provide a basis to envision this could in, uh, proceed on two tracks budget-related, non-budget-related, but the voting scenarios would be very different. 50 votes plus one for the budget would be sufficient, likely. The others that you can't shoehorn into that process will still require 60 unless there's relief on the filibuster. Another thing I'd like to add on the reconciliation, the possibility of a second or even a third reconciliation bill permits the Democrats to think about dividing this bill in a number of different ways so that they can possibly seek to pass an infrastructure bill without a reconciliation and then pass other parts of this bill using the reconciliation. So uh, just by that simple parliamentary rule, uh, the complications and the opportunities have more than tripled. There's so many different ways now to cut this stuff up to see if you can cobble together either 60 to pass it or 51, including Republicans without reconciliation, or then a strict reconciliation bill using just Democrats and the vice president. 
So I think that the final piece that we should wrap up with in evaluating and discussing how this bill is likely to proceed is the filibuster rule, and particularly Senator Manchin from West Virginia, relatively small state, but swinging a big bat. Nita, I know you've been really tracking him. I have, and he opened today with an op-ed in the Washington Post. He is opposed to changing the filibuster rule, and he has now also drawn a line in the sand on the reconciliation. So a door opens and a door closes, potentially. He is wanting to negotiate in the paper as to what President Biden will have to do to make this happen. And I think we can all say that as this current bill is set out, it is as unlikely that pigs would fly that this will actually go into uh, at legislation as its current state. See, we work the pig into the conversation again. I can just tell there's a double meaning. There's people out there that are playing our podcast backwards, trying to get the secret meaning out of what we're saying. Folks, it's just a wild ride in D.C. That's all I can say, farm animals included. Next week, we're going to continue our discussion on unpacking this huge bill of uh, infrastructure. Also, look down the street to see what the agencies might have to say. To our experts on the line, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting FortneyScott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.